0: For more than 54 years, companies were able to deduct R&D expenses from taxable income the year in which the expenses occurred. However, 2017's Tax Cuts and Job Act changed all that. Now, beginning in 2022, companies will have to amortize R&D expenses over five years. For those expenses incurred in the U.S. or over 15 years for expenses incurred abroad. That is, unless that law is repealed. Hello, everyone. I'm Matthew DeMello, your host of The Fiona Show R&D Tax Credit, one of Cross Border Solutions' weekly tax podcasts. Incidentally, one tax director has been working tirelessly on writing letters, articles, even joining us on this podcast who urge the government to repeal the TCJA's amortization law and let companies continue to deduct R&D expenses immediately. And that person is none other than Sharon Heck, the corporate vice president and finance and chief tax officer at Intel and chair of the R&D Coalition. Today, she and cross-border solutions R&D tax expert Lydia Clowney are going to discuss what this means for companies. And I'm actually going to hand things off to Lydia for this conversation. Lydia, you have the floor.
1: Sharon, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank, Thank you, you for inviting me. Excited to talk, our <laughs> you? I know, right? (laughs) Anytime I get to discuss R&D with another passionate practitioner, I'm, I'm pretty geeked. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up choosing tax as a profession? So I'm the
2: chief tax officer of Intel. I've been at Intel for going on four years. Prior to that, I started in public accounting. I was a partner at both Ernst & Young and PwC and spent about 10 years at Brookshire Hathaway as their head of tax as well.
1: Before we dive into R&D, we read that you train horses. We don't run across very many horse trainers in our tax circles. Are there any skills you use in both fields? You know, horses have
2: always been a passion of mine. And you asked me how I chose tax as a profession when I was deciding what to be when I grew up I knew I wanted to keep horses and really work with horses and they're not necessarily cheap to have on your property so I knew I had to make a reasonable salary to be able to afford horses and I got into business got into accounting I had a professor who really just encouraged me to fall into the accounting world. And then once I did, I did a rotation through tax and I realized it was a lot about education. I saw it as a big puzzle, but I also saw it as an opportunity as a more junior CPA to interact with clients and help educate them. And so as I think about my time with horses, I rehabilitate horses for various humane societies that have been abused or neglected and I I foster them and help to have them find a a new forever home and for me it's about figuring out the puzzle of a horse. I I just love puzzles and I I see taxes and horses sometimes as the same. But nowadays I end up learning more from horses than I feel I teach them. They really help me learn to manage my emotions my patience lead with calm confidence as opposed to being reactive and and that has been a leadership skill that has served me really well
1: I love that you uh, call it puzzle solving. I've always re- I can really relate to that. It almost sounds like when I'm struggling with a, an issue in Excel, I have to kind of step back from it and let it be itself.
2: It is amazing how when we walk away from complex things, they our brains just work on it when we step away. And one of the things I really encourage all of my team members to do is have some of that mindfulness, quiet time to to really come back in and and solve hard hard puzzle that the tax world seems to be part of these days.
1: Well, apart from Intel, you're also a member of it and chair the R&D Coalition. Can you tell us a little bit about that organization?
2: Yeah, I'm really honored to be the chair of the R&D Coalition. That's part of the National Association of Manufacturers Trade Association. And it's a coalition that is a partnership of American companies and various business associations that are really committed to advancing the public policies that encourage US investment in research and innovation. And we've got a great website that if any of you are interested, would love to have you check it out. It's investinamericasfuture.org. And there we have a ton of resources to update the public on our efforts and the studies that we help fund to help policymakers better understand the impact of their decisions around research incentives for tax.
1: Let's start by talking about incentivizing R&D in the first place. Why is it so important?
2: If you think through R&D as an expenditure that businesses have, it is an immediate cost for an uncertain payoff in the future. And there is a time where that research is government-funded because it's so uncertain. We're not sure if the world can even be the cutting edge of that. In the US, American businesses invest a ton in R&D, and we have this public-private partnership that tax incentives around R&D help support and underwrite. If I just talk about Intel, we spent $15 billion last year in research and development, which is an incredible amount for us. Our typical annual spend has been about 13 billion. It's close to about 20% of our top line revenue. And that investment has a significant cash flow cost, that the products that we sell related to that R&D investment come years in the future. And so there's this mismatch between the spending and the investment you have to do up front to get the products and the revenue on the back end. And that's where incentives come into play to help with that public private partnership and to help with that mismatch of cash flow.
1: Well, we've spoken about this before on the podcast, but Sharon, if you could give us a refresher what is the new amortization law going into effect for 2022? Yeah, so the Tax
2: Cuts and Jobs Act removed the ability to immediately deduct R&D expenses under Section 174 of the U.S. Tax Code, and that immediate deduction has been in the tax code since 1954. Well, starting in January of 2022, businesses of all sizes and the amount of spending that the U.S. has across all of those businesses was close to a half a trillion dollars. It was actually, was over a half a trillion dollars. It was about 656 billion. And so all of that expenditure will need to be amortized over a period of five years if it was done in the U.S. and 15 years if it was done offshore. And TCJA at the time needed to raise revenue to make the numbers the budgeting numbers work this was put in at the very last minute in hopes that it would be able to be delayed or eliminated the view was that there would absolutely be bipartisan support which we've been able to get bipartisan bicameral support and now we're just doing the work of trying to prevent it from taking effect
1: And that's so interesting. It sounds like it really was just tricky math, that there isn't really a logical rationale for drawing out expenses like that. Is that true? It it was
2: budgetary math, unfortunately. And this has happened in the past in our tax code. There's been other provisions that get put in and the extended date in which they come into effect gets delayed multiple times. And ultimately, they they get removed. So it's not without precedent. It is unfortunate that it was done in an area that is just so critical to our economy. R&D related jobs have great wages. They really help spur the U.S. as a leader in innovation.
1: Does the change in the law impact the R&D tax credit or just the expensing of the R&D expenses? The two tax incentives,
2: the R&D credit and R&D expensing are certainly interconnected, but they don't necessarily overlap. So in 2017, as you know, the law was changed with regard to R&D expensing, like we talked about for TCJA, and under the tax credit, that's a different section, section 41. That was originally temporary, as you know, as well, it was put in place in 1981. It was extended 15 times. And I was so excited when that was finally made permanent as part of the Protecting Americas from Tax Hikes, the PATH Act. The credit is a partial dollar for dollar credit for qualifying expenses. And it really is, is underlying purposes to help incentivize companies to increase their spending year over year with regard to 174, that's broader based expenditures. And there, it's really a cash flow incentive because those investments come in years often where you don't have revenues from the products that are they're related. So they're certainly interconnected, but there's not a direct impact of the R&D tax credit with regard to the expensing of R&D under our 174.
0: Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country specific regulations.
1: of last year, you wrote a fantastic letter to the Secretary of Treasury, Janet Yellen, and then in July, uh, you wrote to Senators Charles Schumer, and Mitch McConnell, Congressman Kevin McCarthy, and Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi about the detrimental effects of the provision. What prompted you to write those letters, and can you outline some of your concerns?
2: As the chair of the r d Coalition, I'm really honored to be able to be part of the education process that we have as part of our mission for helping our elected officials better understand the policy impact of their policy decisions. Tax has a big impact in business on long-term investments that boards of directors and C-suites make with regard to, where they're going to put their spending, whether it's in R&D or where they will put their capital, whether it's in various countries and in various activities. And sometimes that long-term perspective is lost in the day-to-day of what crosses our policymakers' desks. And so helping them better understand how businesses make those long-term decisions and where the policy shifts will shift those decisions is really a critical part of that education and getting to good solid tax policy that drives the activities that we want to incentivize as a country. And so we wrote a letter to President Biden to help him better understand the long-standing policy of immediately deducting R&D and the importance of that. And we've been able to get bipartisan, bicameral support of really continuing that decade-long policy of this deduction and the connection that it has to high-paying U.S. jobs, small businesses, cash flow, and how leaders and businesses really look forward five, six, seven years in making decisions today. And the stability and certainty of tax policy is really critical as they decide where and what they're going to invest in. And so helping our policymakers understand that broader frame is something that I have a lot of passion about and excited to be part of the R&D coalition and having the opportunity to spread that word.
1: Well, you mentioned incentivizing behavior, and it seems like right now is, obviously we're in a a changing time. Pandemic has been really impactful on companies and and their behavior. Do you see the decision-making around this kind of risk-reward scenario of investment in research and development? Do you see that changing? And I guess if you do, what are the risks The risks are the US
2: falls behind globally. The ability to deduct R&D is a global incentive and has been around most developed countries. And and actually the US now is only one of two developed countries that has this policy where you can't deduct immediately your R&D expenses. Belgium happens to be the other developed country that has this policy. And so, the us has a obligation to really help our companies compete in a global marketplace and by not having tax policies that support those jobs in the us support that investment in the us we will continue to fall behind our our developed countries on the global stage and overall it it costs us companies real cash flow in the immediate future it there's about 29 billion dollars that will impact companies in the first nine months of 2022 by having this amortization come into effect
1: yeah it seems like we the public could really miss out on some therapies or, or technologies that we could and be enjoying in the future if uh, if these companies were uh, better incentivized, I guess, to invest in, in those areas. An
2: R&D job is usually $135,000 a year, which is much higher than the, the average. So
1: Yeah, man, there are a lot of facets there. Practically speaking, what are the issues with the provision for companies? It's really a matter of cash flow. By amortizing over five or 15 years,
2: you are not able to take that deduction in a company's tax return. And so you have to spend a dollar on wages, let's say, and you only get a portion of that as an expense against your taxable income. And so that is a harmful cash flow policy for the companies that are making these r and d investments, and so it increases the cost of investing in r and d as opposed to delaying that investment or eliminating it altogether. and while your products over time will degrade, it helps you more immediately not have that cash flow burn. And so that, to me, is one of the biggest harms in this provision is for all businesses really having cash flow to support that investment in R&D and and actually in the first estimated tax payments that are due now. And that's why this provision, we've had the R&D tax credit extended several times. That can be extended at the end of the year in which it expired in the past and that worked out because the cash flow hit wasn't as immediate. For the R&;D amortization, it goes into the calculations for estimated tax payments that companies have to make throughout the year. And so even if this were to get fixed in the future as an extenders towards the end of the year, the companies are incurring those cash flow hits, during the year the first month for calendar year taxpayers to make estimated tax payments is in april and so to me that's why it's imperative that this get fixed before companies have to increase their cash payments to the government over the course of the, this next year by more than about eight billion dollars
1: and that was always one of the criticisms When the R&D credit would lapse, and then they'd wait until the very end of the year to reinstate it, that this also had an impact on companies' ability to really plan and be able to depend on that. So essentially, we were only learning about the sale once we get to the cash register, as opposed to putting more in our basket because we knew there was going to be a discount. It seems like it, in that case, doesn't incentivize behavior unless companies are assuming and and making that bet that the provision will actually go through, which I mean, seems more and more challenging in our political environment at the moment.
2: I, I agree with you having that certainty for what will U.S. tax policy be is really critical to businesses. And I will tell you that with bipartisan, bicameral support for this. U.S. businesses are trusting that our congressional leaders will get this past the finish line. However, they have to be prudent, and and the law doesn't allow them to take that deduction in, in their estimated tax payments immediately. And so I'm very hopeful that we'll be able to get this solved before April for calendar year taxpayers, and we'll have more certainty in our tax code for R&D incentives and broader things. I, I agree with you that tax certainty of, of policy is really critical to global competitiveness.
0: Oh, wait, wait. Who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross Border Solutions Transfer Pricing Technology today at xbs.ai/tp. That's xbs.ai/tp.
1: Of course, R and D incentives aren't a one-way street. Countries as well as local governments benefit from companies who set up R and D hubs inside their borders. Intel announced recently it'll be investing $20 billion in Ohio for two new chip factories. and pledged another $100 million towards partnerships with educational institutions to bolster research programs in the region. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine called it monumental news for the state of Ohio and transformative for the state. Now, I know that semiconductor chips have been in short supply, so obviously it's good news for the country, uh, but why is it, why will it be so transformative for Ohio in particular?
2: Yeah, so I was born and raised in Ohio. I'm, I'm a Buckeye and an Ohioan, and I was so proud. I was listening to the news and I was cheering in my house and my husband's like, aren't you working? I'm like, I'm working. This is so, so exciting. And one of the things that was really important to us As Intel, we're America's leading semiconductor manufacturer, and over time, we've become the only remaining U.S. company that both designs and manufactures leading-edge semiconductors here. And for us, in selecting where we would do a huge investment, this is our largest investment in the U.S. in the last 40 years, and we're really focused on the educational institutions that are there to help support research programs and really keep us at that leading edge. We are the guardians of what's called Moore's law. Moore's law is the doubling of transistors or the power that the brains that is on the semiconductor chips, making them more powerful and cheaper on an accelerated timeline is is really what one of our founders, Gordon Moore, was named Moore's Law. And we are on that march. And we need amazing people that help us stay on that cutting edge and really supporting those research programs and working with the Ohio State University and the amazing educational institutions in Ohio. is a big, part of that. Overall, we have about 20 billion, as you mentioned, that we will be investing. That's going to create 3,000 jobs on the manufacturing site. Those are high paying jobs. And the project in addition will create over 3,000 construction jobs as well we become this little hub of the industry where we set up shop. I've heard it referred to as sort of a queen bee syndrome where you get a hive of all the suppliers and contractors that help serve these huge fabricating manufacturing sites. And we've also announced that we're investing 20 billion in Arizona where we already have a big fab and a lot of investment to build more fabs. We're putting advanced manufacturing, about $3 million in New Mexico, and those will also create close to 4,000 manufacturing jobs, a ton of construction jobs, and that supporting jobs in the community we we estimate to be in the 10,000s. And the CHIPS Act, which you may have heard of, is, is really the Federal Semiconductor Grant Program to help with some of these massive investments. we have one tool that goes in the factory that costs hundreds of millions of dollars. They're really sophisticated machinery. Everything's happening at this microscopic level. It's unlike any factory you've ever seen. And so it's a huge capital investment and we need that federal grant program that's in the CHIPS Act to help support that. And so the CHIPS Act has been passed, and, and we're really hoping that Congress will get that funded and across the, the finish line as well.
1: I'm kind of struck by how much long-term thinking there needs to be in order to get some of these goals across the finish line, both from what you're talking about, the educational aspect of needing to train up the next generation of scientists and engineers and, and kind of deep thinkers, but also just that it seems like the more challenging or more novel the technology, the longer period that you have between the investment in its research and the payoff in terms of being able to sell a product and and when you talk about these these innovation kind of centers or hubs and and the investment you're making in various communities do you see that also as maybe driving even more economic activity more investment more innovation perhaps not even by Intel but by by other companies or or by the government I do I I think having the potential for Great
2: paying R&D jobs helps us get kids excited about STEM. Math and science is so critical to our future as as a company and getting great diverse talent. All of you women out there encourage your, your young daughters to get into STEM. That's one of my other passions is to help young girls see themselves as future R&D scientists and engineers really driving these amazing technological advancements. However, you've got to see it to believe it and want to be it. And so that's where I'm really excited about The announcements today that Intel is making in Ohio, Arizona, New Mexico, and in the U.S. overall, and and really helping to get the the young generation excited about a future in R&D and continuing to drive the global competitiveness that the U.S. needs and our innovation in this country.
1: And it does seem like that global competitiveness is sort of in the zeitgeist. Uh, Last year in an executive order, President Joe Biden recognized, I'll quote, the need for research and development capacity to sustain leadership in the development of critical goods. And you wrote about R&D's importance in global competitiveness in an article on rollcall.com warning that America's at risk of losing its global edge in innovation and R&D. Can you tell us about that and Again maybe again why r and d is so critical to, to global competitiveness
2: absolutely it's It's the foundation of of products and and where we're going to go as a as a human race and and how we're going to really interact with our world in the future and solve really complex problems in front of us and so the u s before this R&D change came about was already ranked 27th out of 37 OECD countries with respect to R&D incentives. In addition, the US was only about 40% as generous as other OECD countries in R&D incentives. And the other critical thing that several of the leadership companies in our own R&D coalition are concerned about, including Intel, is national security. It is really critical that we have cutting edge R&D to ensure national security and resilience for the United States, as other countries are dramatically increasing their R&D expenditures and sustained R&D investments. It's essential to ensure that the US remains able to secure and protect the American people as we all face this increased competition. That was a theme by the National Science and Technology Council that is on the leadership team of the R&D coalition. And so I just feel like their conclusion helps to epitomize this issue and why this is so critical for us as a country. In addition, we talked about the jobs and the investment in that Mm -hmm. and the reduction in spending of our labor force with this provision coming into effect, it's about Close to 68,000 jobs. And over 10 years, it will reduce R&D spending by $10 billion. That's shocking.
1: Yeah. Well, there's been a little bit of legislative movement, Build Back Better. Obviously, it made it through the House, but not the Senate. It it proposed delaying the amortization provision until 2025, but not repealing it outright. Uh, What do you think about that?
2: So appreciative of Congress for providing the four-year delay. It's, it's not the final answer, but it is the moving in the right direction. And so, of course, I will continue to be part of the coalition in, in advocating to get a permanent repeal, but really excited for the bipartisan, bicameral support. We have nearly 100 House members and 26 senators, both sides of the aisle, calling to get this fixed. And we're looking at... Any vehicle that is getting across the finish line, my understanding is Build Back Better, is getting additional discussion. There's thoughts about how to potentially get that done. We're looking at some of the government funding bills, and and maybe we can get something there. In addition, there's the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act and possibly hitching a ride there and so the great thing is we're arguing less about if this should get done whether it's four years or permanent we we've got bipartisan support to get it done It's just the how of that that is always part of U.S. politics that we're still working through.
1: I did want to ask about those other couple of proposals. I think uh, American Innovation and Jobs Act and uh, American Innovation and R&D Competitiveness Act, and both of those support repealing the amortization provision. Can you tell us any more about those proposals? So in the House,
2: the American Innovation and R&D Competitiveness Act was introduced with nearly now 100 bipartisan co-sponsors, Larson and Estes led that. We uh, got several other members of the House Ways and Means Committee to sponsor it. It is a permanent repeal of the amortization of R&D expenses, which we talked about the importance of that, and then in the Senate, the American Innovation and Jobs Act led by Hassan and Young, Cortez Masto, Portman, Sassy, all. We've got a total of 26 supporters between the two parties, and so both of those bills would repeal amortization permanently. In addition, the Senate bill has some changes to the R&D credit for small businesses. And so it's a critical policy change that we've got broad-based support for.
1: And that's stunning to see in this day and age, to see that kind of, of broad, bicameral support, like you say. Any advice to companies who rely on R&D expensing? Sure. Make sure you're aware of this. I've
2: talked to a few people who lost sight of this change. So get educated, make sure that you're not caught by surprise. And then also, just like a lot of things, talk to your congressional leaders about the importance of R&D to your business and the cash flow hit that this provision will cause. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Great way to get educated. And if you want (laughs) more excited to have you go to the coalition's website, Invest in America's Future, org to learn more. Also, you can find me on LinkedIn, Sharon L. Heck, and send me a LinkedIn chat, and
1: I'd be happy to send that your way as well. Sharon, thank you so much for, for joining us today and talking through this. This was a great conversation. I think uh, we all learned a lot. Thanks so much for having me. I love talking tax and
2: R&D in particular. We, we at Intel just had t-shirts made up about tax geekiness. And so <laughs> a podcast like this where I can be my text geek and talk about important provisions. So thank you. <laughs>
0: Yes, I can't think of a better ending than that. And if we needed another name for the show, Tax Geek Party (laughs) Weekly, uh, that's a good one. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. We want to thank Sharon and Lydia for joining us on this very informative discussion. If you enjoyed today's podcast, you're going to love the other shows and cross-border solutions tax podcast suite. That's the Fiona Show transfer pricing and the Fiona Show tax provision. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's the Fiona Show R&D tax credit. And we'll keep you up to date on the latest in this beneficial credit every week. My name is Matthew DeMello, and they let me host, edit, and engineer this podcast. Marilyn Lynn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll catch you next time.